Hi, welcome to Feed the Q, the ultimate podcast discovery podcast. I'm Devin. I work at Tank Media, a podcast marketing company. On this episode, we are exploring fairy tales and getting to hear behind the scenes from the show's host and creator. Today, we're featuring an episode from the podcast Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest. It's a wildly enchanting fairy tale podcast made in partnership with Adam Gidwitz. He's the best-selling author of A Tale Dark and Grim. Each episode features a classic fairy tale bringing to life a world full of curious creatures and mischievous foes. But before we get into that episode, we have an extra special treat today because we have an interview with Adam Gidwitz. The wonderful Will Williams, a podcast industry expert who also happens to work at Tink Media, got to chat with Adam about the show and his work. They talk about how fairy tales inspire such similar thoughts and questions from kids all across the U.S., why spooky stories appeal to kids, and how podcasts like Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest might make it easier for them if they're curious. As a former teacher, Adam thinks a lot about the ways kids interact with stories and the world, and he shares some really helpful insights about what we let kids read. So I'll hand it over to Will and Adam now. Adam, so happy to have you here. I love Grim Grimmer Grimmest. I think it's so fun. I think it's such a great concept for a show. I love hearing the kids' reactions. And I wanted to kick off this conversation by asking you, what do you think makes Grimm's fairy tales still so relevant today and so relevant throughout the ages? Why do we keep coming back to these stories? Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show with you. Um, So I think the thing about fairy tales is um, they, you know, the fairy tales I tell, most of them were written down in Germany in the um, 1800s by the Brothers Grimm, mostly. I also tell some fairy tales by this guy named Franz Xaver von Schönwert. The kids have a lot of fun trying to pronounce his name. Um, (laughs) And uh, the thing is, the fairy tales that they wrote down um, are mostly fairy tales that were passed on through the oral tradition. And the oral tradition back then, I mean, as we obviously know, there were no TV, no movies, no podcasts, uh, hard to imagine. And so they had to be entertainment for everyone, right? They had to tell a story that like the kids wanted to hear, but also like mom and dad and granddad wanted to hear and like crazy Uncle Louie was interested also. (laughs) And they were honed, right? It's not like you just put out an episode and then it was out there in the universe, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody would tell it and then if it was good, they would tell it again. And if it was good, they would tell it again. And then somebody would tell it in somebody else's house because they had heard it. And so it was sort of a collective editing process to get the stories 
that spoke most intensely to the listeners, the, the stories that the listeners were like, I want to hear that one again and again. So when you have this like collective editing process going on through a whole culture, I think that there are elements from the original fairy tales that no longer work for us that I read them and I'm like, well, that is definitely a Germany specific 1844 thought that we don't need to hear. Right. But (laughs) (laughs) you can imagine. But there are underneath of those, the ones that are told over and over again are not the Germany 1844 specific thoughts. They are the ones that speak to us deeply as human beings. So, um, when I, I got into podcasting because I um, am an author, um, I, my first book is called A Tale Dark and Grim, again, based on Grimm's fairy tales. And to promote the book, I would travel around the country telling fairy tales in schools. I still do that. And I had this one experience where I was in Laredo, Texas. Laredo is half in Texas, actually, and half in Mexico. I was on the Texas side. And I had a library full of like 200 eighth grade kids, you know, 95% Mexican-American kids. And I'm telling them, a you know, a German fairy tale from the 1800s. And they're laughing and they're, you know, screaming at the scary parts and uh, asking me questions. And it was a great time. Two weeks later, I was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is Amish country. And I had a classroom of like, I would say 100 fifth graders. And these kids, every single one of them, they were blonde and blue eyed. It looked like children of the corn. And <laughs> it was it was creepy. And right down the street was the Costco where they had horse and buggy parking for the Amish. So a very different community from Laredo, Texas. And yet when I told the same story, they laughed at the same moments, screamed at the same things and asked most of the same questions. These fairy tales seem to speak to kids and adults at like a fundamental, deep emotional level about what they fear and what they're excited about and what they hope for. Um, I think that's why they work. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love hearing about the same experience across completely different demographics. Yeah. Um, And speaking about like kids and what they're scared of and what they're interested in, I knew that when I was growing up, I loved spooky things like I would get pretty scared by horror movies nothing like that but like I remember growing up with things like Courage the Cowardly Dog and you know other uh, like Return to Oz other spooky things for kids Um, I think that Walt Disney has even spoken about like kids like being scared Um, what do you what do you think it is about like the sort of macabre. I mean, even where Grim, Grim, or Grim as the title comes from is your your scale of spookiness, more or less. <laughs> right. Um, I love that you go in giving a little warning to your audience um, just based on what they can handle and making sure to check in with themselves. But what do you think it is about like spooky, creepy stories that appeal to kids? It's a great question. I, I feel like uh, there's a couple of things. Um, one is that... Um, you know, kids are constantly in a process of trying to, like, grow, right? Gain control to get um, wiser and bigger and 
and more competent. I have a seven-year-old daughter. And boy, like she just like today she was like, I'm going to put the leash on the dog before we go outside. And I was like, all right. But like for her, that was a big thing, right? Like she she could do this thing. And scary stories are a challenge to kids, right? It's like, do I feel brave enough? Do I feel like I can face it? Kids like challenges, right? Um, I used to be a teacher, and if my, the, the work I gave kids was too easy, they were bored and they would act out. Mm-hmm. Um, they Absolutely. want, right? They want to be challenged. <laughs> they want to grow. And fairy tales, or sorry, scary stories, um, scary fairy tales, or just scary stories in general, um, are a way for kids to test themselves. Am I ready? Um, and the great thing about um, a book or a, a podcast in particular is that, you know, a scary movie, I mean, you said horror movies, they come at you hard and fast, and it can be hard to turn them off to not see the scary thing um, bef- that you're not ready to see. But in a book or a podcast, your imagination is doing almost all of the work. And so you get to choose how much you imagine and how much you kind of just glaze over. And it's very easy if you're listening to a podcast to take your headphones off. And that's what I do. I say, kids, like, turn down the volume and count to five. And if you're still scared when it comes back, turn down the volume again. Um, And I say, you know what you need. I, uh, I was recently at a conference for teachers and librarians, and I walked into the elevator um, and a woman was in the elevator, a librarian, and she said, oh my gosh, I, I love your books. I wish I had them right here. You could sign them. And I was like, oh, that would be great. And she said, I um, am an elementary librarian and I found your books in my library when I was new and I read them. I love them. And then she said, I mean, it was an elementary library, so I took them off the shelves, of course. Oh, and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> I said, really? And, and I, you know, after I fumbled for a bit, I said, well, you could just put them behind the desk and maybe check with the kids or maybe check with their parents before you let them take them out. And she said, oh, no. Um, <gasps> so what a thing to say to you. Like, <laughs> like all like first off, first off. Wow. Wow. Don't do that to kids. Second off, to say to you, to your face. <laughs> I was dumbfounded. I was flabbergasted. This just happened two Certainly. weeks ago. Yeah. Oh. And and the thing is, right, if kids didn't like the stories, if they upset the children, the stories, then they wouldn't read them. They would right. shut them. Every time you open a book, you shut it. And mm-hmm. so the fact that kids kept taking them out, the fact that they were in the library and it remained in the library was a sign that kids found something in there that they needed. And this librarian, in an attempt to protect children, to be a good steward, as you know, she was a good person, but she had misguidedly taken away an opportunity for kids to grow that they know that they needed. Absolutely. Um, I know that recently you've been speaking out quite a lot about the wave, the very unfortunate wave of pushes for banning more and more books in the school system. Um, your work seems, I think, fairly directly related, but I'd love to know what about this specific subject makes you so passionate? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm talking out about it. I don't think I'm one of the leaders. I know that there are other authors who are saying even more who are going to the school board meetings, and I'm so proud to know them. I'm so proud of the work they do. Um, 
if you live somewhere where a school board meeting is happening and people are challenging books, you should show up to. You should ask them if anyone has read the book they're challenging. Mm-hmm. What drives me crazy uh, is a couple of things. Um, there are two types of book bannings going on or two motivations for book bannings going on. One is this librarian in the elevator. Well-meaning people who think that they are protecting children by taking anything objectionable away from them. These people are wrong because they are not protecting children. If a child is choosing to read the book, it's or yeah, to read the book, it's because there's something in the book that the kid needs to grapple with, right? Just like my daughter needed to read Pat the Bunny a hundred thousand times when she was one. Because there was something she was working on, and it turned out it was her first word. One night we were leaving after we'd read it to her, and she goes, bye, and waves her hand at us just like the kids in the book say, say bye. Um, Yeah, she (laughs) needed to work that out. And so she needed the book. And so people who think that they're protecting kids are saying, no, they can't have these books, and, and they're not protecting kids. That's the first group. Um, And a subset of that group that really bothers me are the people who think that just because they don't want their kids to read a book, no one's kids should get to read a book. I don't let my daughter use an iPad. I do not advocate for the banning of iPads for children, right? That's That's not my responsibility. That's not my choice. That's other parents' choices. And then there's another group, and this is in fact where this wave has come from and why this wave is very well-funded and a national movement. Um, Back in the 1970s, in the whole like um, uh, push for like free markets and no taxation, you know, uh, there was a common phrase, uh, we want to make the government so small that we could drown it in a bathtub. That was what the... um, Um, that was a major movement. It still is. And one of the things that was articulated at the time was um, public schools, which enemies of public schools call government schools. They say public schools um, take too much money. And the way that we can kill the public education system is to make it impossible to run. So there was this manifesto written in the 1970s about like how we're going to kill these public schools. And the first thing they said was, don't say we want to kill them. Say we want things like accountability and then make teachers and administrators fill out so much paperwork and t- administer so many meaningless tests that ultimately the weight of bureaucracy makes the schools crumble uh, just from this like supposedly well-meaning accountability. 30 years later, we see accountability as the watchword of no child left behind. Another thing that we're trying that they're trying to do is when you make it impossible to run a library, a school library or a public library, eventually people decide to stop funding it and they transfer money to private schools and to religious schools. Um, I am happy to have a debate with people about like how much funding schools should get. I say more um, or how much taxes we should pay. I think that those are absolutely reasonable things to do. But to take a book like um, the wonderful picture book, Jabari Jumps, about a little boy who's scared of jumping off of a diving board, and then he gets brave enough and he does it. And the boy happens to be a black boy. And to ban it because you're trying to kill the schools is uh, a kind of evil that I I cannot abide and um, our children should be spared from.
Absolutely. And thank you so much for the work that you've done in speaking out. Um, I know you say that you think you're not a leader or some such, but your work resonates and it's important. It's something that I, I noticed and I think a lot of people noticed and it it matters. It matters a lot. So Adam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your incredible thoughts and thank you for appreciating and respecting the autonomy and genuine well-being of our next generations. It's such an honor and pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for letting me talk like this. It's a, a real, a real honor. I find myself thinking so much about the ways podcasts allow people to hear so many different experiences and perspectives, but this interview has given me an even deeper appreciation for that. And I think that's one of the things Adam's show does best. It brings an extra layer to the stories because you actually hear kids reacting and responding to the tales in each episode. Hearing their experiences kind of makes you experience the stories in a new way, no matter how old you are. So if you heard tales from the Grimm brothers as a kid, you might have heard the cute, sweet versions. But the real versions have a little more weirdness and creepiness to them. So to give you an idea, here's the tale of Rumpelstiltskin. Pinna! Hi, my name is Adam Gidwitz. I'm an author. I'm also a storyteller. I like to tell lots of different kinds of stories. I especially like to tell grim fairy tales. Well, what does that mean, you might be wondering? What is a grim fairy tale? I don't even know the definition of the word grim. Well, grim spelled with one M means dark and scary and ominous. But grim spelled with two M's is the name of two brothers, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. These brothers Grimm lived in Germany over 200 years ago and they're famous for the stories they collected. Stories like Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. Now, you may think, I stopped liking those stories when I was like three years old because they are cute and boring. But listen, those were the cute, happy little kid bedtime versions of the Grimm fairy tales. The original Grimm tales aren't like that at all. They're weird and sometimes gross and often scary. In other words, they're grim. And I'm about to walk into a classroom and tell one of the original grim, grim tales to a bunch of kids. Do you want to join me? Do you want to hear a grim fairy tale? I don't know if you said yes or no because I can't hear you. So let me tell you a few things that might help you decide. When I say grim fairy tales are weird, I mean like really weird. Like... Wait, how did that kid just turn into a church? And what? Did that princess just come back to life? Most of the time, these questions don't have answers. But that's okay. Sometimes it's fun to just ask the questions anyway. Here's another thing you need to know. These stories can be scary. On a scale of grim, grimmer, and grimmest, the story I'm going to tell today is grimmer. It's not very scary, and you might have even heard it before. But there is some weirdness and some danger. If I get to a part of the story and you start to feel scared or uncomfortable, 
This is what you could do. You could turn down the volume and count to five, then turn the volume back up. If it still seems like a part you don't want to hear, just turn the volume down and count to five again. You know how much weird and gross and scary you're ready for. You know what you need. Okay, I'm at the classroom door now. There are kids inside, waiting to hear a grim fairy tale. So, are you coming in? Grim, grimmer, grimmest. You're all third. Okay. Um, my name is Adam, but I let my kids call me Mr. Gidwitz. No, yeah, that's my last name. Giblets. No, not not that. Okay. All right, here we go. Once upon a time, there was a miller who was very proud of his daughter. He loved to talk about her. The miller's daughter was the greatest kid ever born. At least that's what the miller seemed to think. Do your parents ever talk about you this way? Oh, she's so wonderful at this. He's amazing at that. Yeah. Come on, show them. Don't be shy. She's really amazing. It's kind of embarrassing, right? Yeah. Your parents do that. Yeah, yeah. You know exactly what our parents embarrass us all the time. My parents get embarrassed me by dancing in public. Yeah. And then in public. Also, when they're bragging about you like that, sometimes it feels like a lot of pressure, right? They're like, he's so amazing. And you're like, am I really, you know? Yeah. One evening, the Miller was at a tavern bragging about his daughter. Everything someone's kid could do, the Miller's daughter could do better. Eventually, someone said, My daughter can spin the roughest wool into the finest thread. Oh, yeah, said the miller. My daughter can spin straw into golden thread. Real thread, made out of gold. Well, no one believed him, but the miller insisted. In the tavern was a servant to the king. The servant said to the miller, If your daughter can spin straw into golden thread, she should come to the palace. The king would reward her greatly. So the next day, the miller set out with his daughter to see the king. The miller's daughter was furious with her father. I can't spin straw into gold. Why would you say that? But the miller just patted her on the hand and said, You'll be fine. When the miller and his daughter got to the castle, they were led into a small stone room. The air was thick with dust, and the room was stacked floor to ceiling with straw. A spinning wheel, which is used to spin wool into yarn, sat in a corner. The king walked in. So, the king announced, I hear you can spin straw into gold. The miller's daughter tried to object. Actually, your highness. But the miller cut her off. Of course she can. And because the miller was older and a man and her father, the king listened to him and not to her, which is not right or fair at all. But it's how things worked in that kingdom. Anyway, the king said, If she can spin all this straw into gold by morning... I will make you the richest miller in the kingdom. But if she cannot, you will be proven a liar, and I will hang you from your thumbs until you are dead. With that, he took the miller by the arm, led him out of the room, and locked the door behind him. Okay, I have a question for you. Do you know what kills you? if you are hanging by your thumbs until you die? Like, what, what is it that kills you? What is, in the end, what do you die from when you're hanging you by your thumbs? You starvation or something. You think it's starvation? Yeah. What do you think? Your blood flow kind of gets cut, yeah. cut off. You think your blood flow gets cut off and you die from lack of blood flow? 
The nails, like, it goes through you. Oh, the nails, it goes through your nails, and that somehow kills you? Like, goes through your fingers? Yeah, like this. What do you think? The nail gets inside of you. Oh, and maybe you get like infected or something. Those are awesome guesses. The answer is, I have no idea how you die by hanging by your thumbs. Those could all be right. I have no idea. The miller's daughter looked at the straw and began to weep. She was furious with her father and terrified for them both. She wept thinking of her father dying of getting infected or the circulation being cut off or starving while hanging from his thumbs. I know, I was just repeating what you said. But then she stopped weeping, because standing in front of her was a tiny man with spindly little legs, enormous eyes, and a funny mashed-up-looking face. He said, Hello there. Hello. How do you do? And she graciously curtsied, because it is always best to be polite to tiny magical men who appear out of nowhere. (laughs) Why are you crying? If I don't spin all this straw into gold by morning... The king will hang my father by his thumbs until he dies. No, that is a terrible way to die. Do you know what kills you first? Never mind, you don't want to know. Anyway, I can spin all this straw into gold for you by morning. But it'll cost you. What? I'll give you anything. I don't want much. Just a lock of your hair. Why would you want a lock of my hair? In response, the tiny man started to sing. I'm a strange little man with strange little ways. And if you want to know my name, you'll be guessing for days. I am clever. I am tricky. I am cunning. I am wise. Don't ask me any questions. I won't tell you any lies. That's a good rap. Yeah, it's actually a pretty good rap. You liked it? Yeah, I love that one. But she didn't want her father to die by hanging from his thumbs. So she agreed. The tiny man cut off a lock of her hair with a tiny pair of golden scissors, tucked the lock into a pocket of his vest sat down at the spinning wheel and spun ten bales of straw into perfect thread of pure gold. The next morning, the king opened the door to the little room. To his shock and delight, the straw was gone, and now half the room was filled with golden thread. The king was thrilled. He said, Come with me! He hurried the miller's daughter to another room, larger than the last, with twenty bales of straw. Spin this straw into gold by morning, and your father will be rich, and you will be even richer. But if you fail, I'll know that you've played a trick on me, and your father will hang from his thumbs until he's dead. The king closed and locked the door behind him. The miller's daughter gathered up the straw and fed it through the spinning wheel, trying to do exactly what the tiny man had done the night before. But try as she might, she could not spin straw into gold. She began to weep again. Both at the thought of her father dying by hanging from his thumbs and also at how angry she was that he had done this to them both. But just then, the tiny man appeared. He offered to spin all the straw into gold in exchange for her fingernail clippings. The miller's daughter was now completely creeped out. Uh, why do you want my fingernail clippings? But the tiny man just replied, I'm a strange little man with strange little ways, and if you want to know my name, you'll be guessing for days. I am clever, I am tricky, I am cunning, I am wise. Don't ask me any questions. I won't tell you any lies. Or will he? (laughs) So the miller's daughter agreed. The tiny man clipped her fingernails with tiny golden nail clippers. That's just super gross, right? Slid them into a pocket of his vest, sat down at the spinning wheel. And spun 20 bales of straw into perfect gold thread. The next morning, the king came in, saw the golden thread, and exclaimed, What a remarkable girl you are! Come with me! So he hurried her into an enormous room. When the miller's daughter saw it, her stomach felt all sick and twisty. 
One hundred bales of straw were stacked from floor to ceiling. I think the king is trying to use her just so he can get even more rich. I mean, I think you're right. Making him gold, he's not gonna make you rich. He's gonna, he might just do it anyway because he might he just give you like one bale. He wants to be rich just too. The miller's daughter looked at the straw stacked from floor to ceiling and said, "I don't know." But the king said, "If you can spin this straw into gold by morning, I will take you as my wife. You will rule as my equal." And I will never ask you to spin straw to gold again for as long as you live. But if you fail, I will be forced to hang your father by his thumbs until he dies. <laughs> the king closed and locked the door behind him. The miller's daughter didn't even try to spin the straw into gold, nor did she weep. She just called, "Tiny man, tiny man." The tiny man was there. He gazed at the straw in the room. That is a lot of straw. <laughs> the miller's daughter asked, "Can you do it? I'll give you anything." The tiny man thought for a moment. Hmm. I will spin all this straw into gold by morning, in exchange for your first-born child. Well, this was far creepier than a lock of hair or fingernail clippings. <laughs> Why do you want my first-born child? Asked the miller's daughter. But the man merely sang. I'm a strange little man with strange little ways, and if you want to know my name, you'll be guessing for days. I am clever. I am tricky. I am cunning. I am wise. Don't ask me any questions. I won't tell you any lies. The miller's daughter begged the tiny man to take something else, but he refused. It was her first-born child, or nothing. At last, she agreed, and the tiny man cackled. <laughs> He spun all the straw into gold. In the morning, the king came and opened the door. Instead of straw, he saw endless spools of golden thread. He shouted with wonder, "What a special girl you are! Please, miller's daughter, will you marry me? I will never ask another thing of you again as long as you live. You will rule this kingdom as my equal in all things." What do you think? Should she marry him? No. Would you? You have a strong opinion about it. Why shouldn't she marry the king? Because he literally said that I'll hang your father from his thumbs until he dies if you don't. If you don't make do something gold. impossible. Seems like not a nice dude. I don't think she should marry him because then she will have to give her firstborn child to that little man, and then the king will get mad at her. Oh, that's a really good thought. That she would totally get in trouble yeah. for giving away the firstborn child. So guess what? And then she good might thought. not have another child. Yeah. Okay. One more. Uh oh. Um, I think that he shouldn't. Um, she shouldn't marry him because one, you never know if he's lying. Two, if you marry him, she might think she doesn't care about my his father anymore. I'll just kill him anyway. <laughs> Maybe. And. Why would you marry a guy who's trying to force you? Right, totally. Well, let's see what the miller's daughter does. The miller's daughter thought about the king's offer. It would be nice to finally be her own boss. She thought, if she was queen, no one could make her live up to their stupid boasts, or force her to save someone's life by performing impossible tasks, or speak over her when she tried to tell the truth. It sounded like a nice change, so she agreed, and they were married. And it was a nice change. The king was kind most of the time, and when he wasn't, the miller's daughter could tell him off because she was his equal. 
all went well until she had her first child. A little baby girl. The night after the girl was born, as the miller's daughter lay in her royal bed, cradling the child in her arms, the tiny man appeared. He demanded his due. The miller's daughter was horrified. She offered him all the riches in the kingdom if only he would let her keep the child. But he would not be moved. He insisted on taking the baby girl. The miller's daughter began to weep deeper and harder than she'd ever wept in her life. She wept and wept and wept. The tiny man saw this weeping and was moved. Fine! If you can guess my name, I will let you keep your daughter. What? That's a weird and arbitrary price for keeping my daughter. To the Miller, Miller's daughter? You want the deal or not? If you can guess my name in three days, I'll have no power over you or the baby. But if you fail, she is mine and no power on earth can keep her from me. What choice did the Miller's daughter have? Besides, how hard could guessing his name be? So she asked... Can I start guessing now? Sure. Is it Tom? No. Bill? No. Bob? No. Fred? No. She kept guessing for a long time. But every name she guessed, the tiny man smiled and said, no. Then he said, I'll come back tomorrow night and you can guess again. And he disappeared. The next day, the miller's daughter took her baby into her arms and went out around the kingdom, asking for every name anyone had ever heard of. The next night, the tiny man showed up, and the miller's daughter started guessing again. Is it John? No. Mark? No. Mark with a C? No. Mark with a Q? What? No. Is it Fred? You guessed Fred yesterday. No matter how many times she tried, she couldn't guess his name. The next day, the miller's daughter consulted all the scholars of the kingdom and all their most ancient books. She made an enormous list of names. But that night went just as badly as the night before. Is it Fritz? No. Murphy? No. Tiffany? That's a girl's name! <laughs> it's not Tiffany! Fred? It's not Fred! Do you guys want to guess some names? Yeah. All right, yeah, guess some names. Yeah. What do you think? Rumpelstiltskin? Okay, it could be that. What else? Johanna. Johanna? <laughs> I'll come back to you. Joe Clipper. Joe Clipper? That's a good name, Joe Clipper. No name dude. No name dude? That's a good name. The third day, the miller's daughter felt the deepest despair. She took her baby in her arms and wandered through her kingdom, not even bothering to ask for names. What was the use? Tonight, the tiny man would come and take her precious daughter. She wandered farther and farther into the poorest neighborhoods of the kingdom, among huddled shacks and men warming their hands over garbage fires. And then, as the miller's daughter got out into the scrubby woods at the edge of her kingdom, she heard an odd but familiar song. I'm a strange little man with strange little ways, and if you want to know my name, you'll be guessing for days. So clever and so tricky that I always win, and no one knows my name is Rumpelstiltskin. And she heard a mad cackling. (laughs) Can you all cackle the top of your lungs? That was creepy. Well, the miller's daughter rushed back to the castle just as night fell. She was lying in her bed, nursing her baby, when the tiny man appeared. Today is the final day. If you can't guess my name, your daughter is mine. I think I know your name. Oh, you think so? (laughs) The tiny man cackled. And when the miller's daughter heard the cackle, she knew 
she was right. Is it Eggleroy? No. Is it Godric? No. Is it Bumpy Nose? No. Is it freakish little guy with huge eyes who just appears out of nowhere? No. Is it Fred? What is your obsession with the name Fred? <laughs> Fine. Is it Rumpelstiltskin? <laughs> the tiny man was furious. How did you learn that? How did you know? Now, there are a few different versions of the end of this story. In some of them, Rumpelstiltskin gets so mad that he stamps his foot so hard he goes flying out the window, which doesn't make any sense. In other versions of the story, he stamps his foot so hard that he shatters into a thousand pieces, which makes even less sense because people don't just shatter. What really happened was that Rumpelstiltskin stamped his foot so hard that it got buried three feet in the ground. Then he grabbed his other leg and pulled up on it with such force that he ripped himself in half. Yes, really. And the miller's daughter lived happily ever after. Oh, and she named her daughter Fred. Probably. The end. So you know what's really funny? Deal with the name Fred. Wasn't that scary? There was some suspense. I noticed you guys feeling a little bit suspense. It was suspenseful, but it wasn't, but it wasn't scary. It was, but it definitely wasn't boring. That's awesome. It was really it was funny. And there was one gross part at the end. Yeah. No, that wasn't gross. It was, it was not gross when he ripped himself in half. Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest is a Pinna original production, created and written by me, Adam Gidwitz, author of A Tale Dark and Grim. Produced and edited by Ilana Milner. Casting and voice direction by Paula Gammon Wilson. Sound design and mixing by Beat Street NYC. Location recording by Jason Gambrell and Evan Viola. Narrated by me, Adam Gidwitz. Characters voiced by Francesca Kahlo, Kylie Claxton, Kaylin Clinton, Nicholas Corda, Michael Crouch, Dylan Jones, George Lambert, Eddie Lee, Ilana Milner, Nofi Mitchell, Allison Rosenfeld, Erica Schroeder, and Billy Bob Thompson. Special thanks to the staff and students at Brooklyn Friends School and Manhattan Country School. You guys are amazing. Okay, see what I mean? I definitely don't remember the part about the father possibly dying by hanging from his thumbs, but those kids took it all in stride with their thoughts and theories about this kind of extreme punishment. Whether you're listening with a kid or on your own to relive the stories from when you were a kid, Grim Grimmer Grimmest is such a fun ride. You can find more episodes of Grim Grimmer Grimmest in your favorite podcast apps, for all things Tink Media and Feed the Q, find us at tinkmedia.co or follow us on social at tinkmedia. And a huge thank you to Will Williams and Adam Gidwitz for taking us behind the scenes in this episode. And thank you for listening. With us around, you'll never run out of things to listen to. With us around, to cause we'll feel
Read your cue.